This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hello. Uh, today, we, JT and I solved a mystery. What's up? Uh, the mystery was <laughs> we both... Uh, when did you get your box, JT? Mine arrived you, uh, you, two days ago. Yep, exact same, two days ago. Okay. And it was a mystery box. It was full of carbohydrate goodness and just things that I wanted to stuff my face with. And it had its really kind happy birthday note, but with no name. Yeah, it was full of all these pretzels. And we were like locked into this mystery of who had sent us these pretzels. And it really had me twisted up, you know? Uh, it was a really salty situation. Uh, <laughs> you guys are so cheesy. Oh, there we go. Bang, bang. That's the trifecta right there. The Lord is smiling on us today. Um, uh, yeah, so we, we got this box of pretzels. And I start texting friends because there's a sweet note. And I'm like, who has sent me? So I, I text a couple of my friends. I text the host of Family Discipleship Podcast, Adam, because he knows I love pretzels. You didn't text like, hey. me. Well, I, I did. I was like, I, well, I knew I'd see you guys today. And I was like, well, I'll just ask them on the call. But uh, yeah, so I was like, who, who sent us these pretzels? And so I log on to the call today. And Jen's like, hey, happy birthday. And I was like, did you send me a box of pretzels? <laughs> This is literally an example of my left hand not knowing what my right hand is doing. So I'm just glad you got them. And you know what? We got them. And both of our wives emailed the company. And we're like, hey, who who sent us these pretzels? And we haven't heard back yet. So That company needs to work on their... uh, they do not need to work on their pretzels. Their, their pretzels notification are phenomenal. No. <laughs> their pretzels are locked night, in. My son asked for another one. I was like, no way. Get your hand off my birthday <laughs> present. Yeah, who, who doesn't want the gift of carbs? So that was sort of inspired by like every time I get off a flight in Terminal A at DFW Airport, there's one of those pretzel places right there and you can mm-hmm. smell it and you kind of lose your mind. And so I thought, why wouldn't JT and Kyle want to lose their minds a little we, bit? We did. Glad. Hey, just, this glad. is a quick. This is a very quick side note. I know we need to get to Romans. I think I I flew through DFW a few weeks ago. I think it's Terminal D. It feels like you're at a Ritz Carlton. Yeah, it's like it's the super nicest nice. terminal I've ever been in my life. Just FYI, listeners, if you're flying through DFW, head over to Terminal D, hang out for a little bit. It mm-hmm. makes travel a lot yeah. better. Mm-hmm. Have a nice meal. Look at the scenery. Yeah. It's wow. Great. I this is literally the first time anyone has ever described DFW like that to me. Normally DFW, people are like, it's a war you, zone. No, you move away from DFW and you realize what a That's real a great war zone airport. Is. It's that a is great a airport. it's a great airport. I was in the Orlando airport, no offense to my Orlando friends out there, and I was like I I never want to come here again. I will take the bus the next time I have to come to Orlando. Yeah, Orlando, you heard it here first. Get your airport <laughs> <laughs> Florida seems to have everything locked down, yeah. so make sure you get that yeah. airport figured out. <laughs> At least put a pretzel place in. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, we're talking about Romans, and this is one of the last two episodes on Romans. We're covering Romans 15 today. So let's just, for the audience, maybe you're tuning in. Somebody sent you Knowing Faith, and they sent you the Romans 15 episode on Knowing Faith. If they did that, and they have not done you any help at all because we've covered this over two whole seasons and we're about to wind it up. So let's just kind of recap Romans so far. I'm going to do this. JT, I'm going to let you have Romans one through three. I'll take oh. Romans. Oh yeah. Perfect. Boom. Oh, you're going to wow. do a great job. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take four through six. Jen, you're going to come in with seven and eight and then we'll all tag team and the last few chapters. All right. So JT, kick us off. How does Romans start? 
Romans start really as a missionary support letter. Paul is trying to make his way to Spain, and he needs he needs financial support. But he he's ultimately writing this church that has a, a bit of a it, it, to call it a faction would be overstated, but there's just friction in the life of the church between Jews and Gentiles, and what a life of faith looks like. Some believe that this life of faith is 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 believing in Christ, but still following the letter of the law. Others believe these Gentiles believe it's just following Christ and kind of living however we want. So Paul is writing a letter to help them understand the gospel. He starts in Romans chapter one by saying he's unashamed of the gospel and this gospel is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for both Jews and Gentiles. And Jews and Gentiles, ultimately, in chapter one, two, and three, what he's going to lay out is that they are the same, that both Jew and Gentile alike have been found to be sinners before God because of their idolatrous hearts. They've rebelled against God. And Romans chapter three really ends with this kind of climactic statement that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ can be given to all who believe, but there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So so what Paul is trying to do in those first three chapters is try to level the playing field, so to speak, between Jew and Gentile believer and say, you're both sinners. Neither of you have any advantage before God because God shows no partiality. And that really leads into what you're going to talk about, Kyle, in chapter four of, so then who is this example of faith that we can receive righteousness? Yeah. And of course, there's really nobody better he can appeal to than Abraham. And that's exactly who he appeals to. In Romans four, he appeals to two juggernauts in the history of redemption and in Israel's covenantal history, Abraham and David. And he appeals to them to point out that the gift of righteousness has always come through faith and has never come exclusively through the law or fidelity to the law. And they ask the question, he knows the audience will be going, well, then how are we made righteous? How is this? Because there's a problem. He's already stated the problem in Romans 1 through 3. And that solution is justification. It is God declaring his people righteous in Christ and then receiving that righteousness in Christ through the instrument of faith by the gift of God's grace. And this gift of righteousness makes them alive. That's what happens. And so then in Romans 6, he begins to talk to them about, okay, if you have been made alive to God, there are things that are going to have to change in your life. He assumes that his audience might go, well, if everything is grace, then can I live however I want to? And Romans 6 is the beginning of him saying, no, if that's how you operate, then you misunderstand what he is up to in your life. Yeah. So then like the the logical question that is in the mind of every Jewish listener at that point is, what am I supposed to do with the law? And so he gets to chapter seven and he begins to talk about what authority does the law have in our lives? And he talks about how um, we are um, not able to obey the law, that the law uh, uh, actually incites in us more sinful behaviors, um, which nobody likes to hear that. That's a bad thing to hear. Um, But then if you should think, oh, I'm done with the law, he begins to show them how the law still has a place in the life of the one who is living according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And so we get set up for us this comparison between life in the spirit, life in the flesh. And Paul has one of his most famous and controversial um, statements where he talks about that which I want to do, I don't do, that which I do not want to do, I do, um, raising the issue for all of us of when we are in view of the law, how do we respond? And that we, even even those who are in the spirit still rail against what is good for them in many ways. Um, and then he talks about how, uh, gosh, this feels like the biggest pop quiz, guys. 
Surprise. <laughs> Just tell us the story of Romans in 30 yeah. seconds or less. Then he, he gets into chapter eight, which actually we're more familiar with often than other parts of the book. And he starts talking about um, God being for us, which is really good news after what you've heard in the in the preceding chapters. Um, and he says that um, creation is going to be renewed, that our present sufferings are as nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that's waiting for us, and that we should pray. And that when we're weak and don't know how to pray, that the Spirit prays for us. And then we get that beautiful chain of God foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying mm-hmm. us. And this magnificent statement, if God is with us, who can be against us? No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Yeah. And then there's a bit of a shift. And it's almost like Paul then begins to retrace the argument a little bit, assuming, mm-hmm. anticipating, and answering potential objections, particularly those that would be rooted in the unique histories between the Gentiles and the Jews. And so Romans 9 through 11 is a really, gosh, it's, it's a very dense approach to dealing with what are very tricky topics between Gentile and Jewish history and how there is now Gentile inclusion into the covenant promises of God, Pro- promises that at one time at least appeared to be, though maybe or maybe not were, exclusive to Israel. And so when you get through Romans 11 into Romans 12, really Romans 12 up and through the chapter we're discussing today, Romans 15, there is an ethical shift in the letter where the exhortation is now on the foundation of We've told you who uh, I've told you who God is. I've told you what God has done. I told you who you are, and now I'm going to tell you how now you should live mm-hmm. as a church. So the Romans 12 begins with present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And 12, 13, 14, and 15, and I would argue 16 are really an articulation and exploration and an explanation mm-hmm. of how you can live as a living sacrifice that's not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that's where we're at today. In a lot of ways, these last four chapters are why he wrote the letter. Mm-hmm. He's trying to he's trying to tell them here's here's how you live together as a new creation, both Jew and Gentile together in one church. But I also think it's important for us to know that he also like if you're saying twelve through sixteen are maybe the reason why he wrote the letter, the ethics of the, of the letter, he starts with theology. Like I love Mm -hmm. that Paul leads them through 11 chapters of theology that grounds our ethical living or our practical living with one another. And now, like you said, Kyle, he's getting real practical. Here's how you can do this together as one family situated right under the Colosseum right there in Rome. That's good. Yeah. Like we, he, he articulates the beliefs that we all share. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's already given them the basis for the unity that he's now going to be talking about when we get to chapter 15. That's right. Yeah, I love it. Guys, we did a great job right there. We did I'm, proud of all, I'm proud of all of us. I really am. Uh, and if you, the listener, are not proud, then we are sorry. Uh, lean on God, your sure and steady foundation. Hey, can, um, I, can okay. I tell you a quick funny story before we jump into 15 here? Uh, sure. We don't have much to talk about. It'll, be, it'll, it'll be 30 <laughs> seconds or less. I was getting ready to prepare for this chapter. Like, I was like, okay, Romans 15, we need to get ready to talk about it. I should listen to the Knowing Faith podcast to help me understand it. Well, we haven't recorded it yet. No, we for sure have <laughs> I not. Swear, mm-hmm. I swear to you this happened because I go back and listen to these podcasts. You do? Yeah, when I'm preparing for my sermon, I go back and listen. So like last week, I went back to Romans chapter 7 when we had Tom Schreiner on because that's what I was preaching on at Storyline. And then I had this like, okay, I got to listen to Romans 15 so I can talk about (laughs) Romans 15. I was like, 
dang it, I need to prepare for Romans 15. Okay, this is like one of the, I, I finally got ahead of it, you know, with teaching in the Bible study. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, it was so much better recording the podcast. And you've been, this whole time, you've been just lazying it up, using us I go as back, your commentary. I, I'm just using your notes, Jen. Hmm. Mm. Well, we go good luck, save yourself. <laughs> in Romans 15, Paul says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to play, please ourselves. He's brought up this, the weak. He's brought up this audience before. Who are they? This isn't a dig. Paul's not like, he's not slamming a group of people, but he is using these categories of the the strong and the weak. So are the weak those who are physically inferior? Are the, the weak those who can't squat as much as JT? Yes, are, <laughs> that, is, that is the weak. <laughs> who are the weak? There's debate over this question. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's usually kind of three or four options that are given. The Kind of the, the main answer that's given would be Jewish and or Gentile Christians who are still trying to live according to the to the Jewish law, that they believe that yeah we have faith in Christ, but but we also do these things to demonstrate it. And Paul is using this language of weak of saying that they have a different level of faith in terms of Christian liberty, in terms of freedom of conscience, of what mm-hmm. ethics ethics looks like. Is that that's what you guys would say, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the one who, and this was this was actually sort of paradoxical when I started thinking about it more. But it's the one who is actually more conscience bound. So exactly. Um, so in other words, you know. Oh, you know, I know you're telling me that I don't need to observe these dietary laws anymore, but I just can't get my conscience there yet. If I were to stop observing them, I would be racked with guilt. And I and so um, we often think of the one who is the most disciplined in their practice of obedience, whatever that is, as being the strongest. And I think a little of what Paul is doing here, and if you're someone who's lazy, I'm not giving you a pass on on disciplines, but he's pointing out that sometimes it is those who are the most externally disciplined who are actually the weak, can be the, the weakest. In- what bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World as Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. In their ability to obey. And it's interesting because he's certainly not trying to undermine the moral life. No. He's just, he's just trying to make it rooted, like to root it appropriately. And, and I think it's very interesting how he ties the moral life of his audience to Jesus. Look at like, 
Because he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then he gives examples. But the examples aren't really horizontal. They're examples of Christ unto us. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself. Then if you move forward, you see in um, verse 5, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And then even in verse 8, when he's going to now kind of keep kind of exhorting them. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So it's not a surprise to us, but I do think it is something that often is lacking in our kind of Christian formation muscle memory, that our moral life is not tied to comparison with the other people in our covenant community. Mm-hmm. It's tied and anchored to the covenant keeping fidelity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like he is the anchor of our moral life. So Paul's not saying, Hey, uh, the strong and the weak, neither of you should lose too much sleep on on obeying. He's saying, hey, strong and weak, if you are thinking about what should be the manner of your life, don't look to who's excelling to the left or the right of you. Mm. Look to who has saved you. That is really going to be the measure of faithfulness mm-hmm. is Christ Jesus himself, not those who are following Christ Jesus. Yeah, and the easiest delineation of who he's talking to are, are two two distinct groups of people, Jew and Jewish and Gentile believers, who each have their own particular uh, backstory, right? And, and, and if you have been in the church for any period of time, you know that a person's backstory, well, I mean, as JT likes to say, all theology is autobiography. And so— um, these are two distinct groups of people with very different backstories that are informing the way that they think about obedience. And um, he's saying to them, you are capable of living at peace with one another. But I think that you, you so it's basically saying to, in the, to go back to the, the, the overarching idea of the parable of the prodigal son and the older son, mm-hmm. saying to the prodigal son and the older son, you're able to live as members of one family. Um, there is more that unites you than divides you, and um, and and the things that divide you are things that are not essential to being a part of this family. Um, but but you know, as is typically the case, we always perceive ourselves in the role of the of the stronger instead right. of in the weaker. And and you know, let he who is um, weak be aware. You know that that you might be meant, you might be presenting as someone who is very strong when in fact what you're doing is compensating for a weakness, which mm. may be exactly the right thing you need to do based on your your past history. Um, so, you know, someone comes to my house who has a history of alcoholism, I'm not going to offer them a cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, even though in, you know, in my home, I might think a cocktail is something that's perfectly fine. So they have a weakness that means they have to be extra disciplined about something, but the discipline might require a strength of its own. So we always cast ourselves in the role of the one who's, who's got this. Well, in verse seven, he, I think he kind of gets to the, the, not the imperative, but like the conclusion, I guess it is an imperative. He says, welcome one another. So therefore mm-hmm. both strong and weak, you should welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So that kind mm-hmm. of ties both of these things together. Jew and Gentile alike are to welcome one another because Christ is their ethical and moral anchor. And he continues in, in, in I know you're going to get here in a second, Kyle, but in uh, verses eight and nine, I think that uh, helps us even understand more who the strong and the weak are in verse one. He says, for I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's mm-hmm. to Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch. So Christ is the moral anchor. He is he confirms the truthfulness and the faithfulness and the fidelity, the covenant-keeping work of God that's available to us in Christ. But then verse 9, he also says, 
and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God in his mercy yeah. for his mercy. So he's tying both together. Jew and Gentile alike welcome one another because Christ has welcomed both of you, but both to confirm the truthfulness of God's covenantal promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Christ is the covenant-keeping God, but also he demonstrates his mercy by grafting in these new people, which is a promise given to Abraham in Genesis mm -hmm. 12, that he will be a blessing to all nations. So Christ is both our theological example of God's truthfulness and faithfulness. He's also our ethical example in terms of welcome the nations in to this relationship that you have through the mercy of God in Christ. Yeah, and that's what I had in our notes, which is just like Romans uh, or eight, verses eight through t twelve. Do you feel like a bit of a nod back to Romans nine yeah. through eleven here? Yeah, where it's almost like here he's like, okay, he's not gonna. It's almost like a condensed sum summation of like what Romans nine through eleven was. Like, okay, hey, I know that this is not. Maybe it's not as clear to you as it should be. It's certainly not comfortable. There's some differences and some disjointedness. But like I said in Romans 9 through 11, here it is again in verses 8 through 12. And that that is my theory. And I think you just said it, JT, a minute ago. So kind of bums me out because I felt like <laughs> – <laughs> Well, just, just say it better than I did. No, well, there's not. That's not going to happen because uh, we know the pegging order here. I say something, you improve it. Jen perfects it. That's, <laughs> oh my uh, gosh! Um, but uh, I, I think Romans. You said it. Oh gosh, Romans 15 and 16 do feel like a. This is why I'm writing this whole thing. In some ways, I feel like both of these chapters are like the whole argument of Romans, like in miniature, like condensed and compressed. I'm certainly not saying it says everything, but it says what Romans 1 through 14 says. Yeah, it doesn't kinda, say he kind of leads them down a road for 14 chapters of like, and he's making sure, hey, you're with me still. You're with me still, right? You're with me still, yep. right? We agree on this, right? We agree on this. And then mm -hmm. he's like, therefore, you guys have to live like 15 and 16, or you really could say through 12 through 16 set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, verse 13, Paul has these one-liners. Uh, he almost has like all these various miniature doxologies through Romans. I don't mm -hmm. know. I didn't count them. I'm, I bet Jen's like, oh yeah, there's 3.75. <laughs> well, there would probably be seven. I mean, if I was okay. guessing, but yeah, he did. no, but it's seriously, we're to the part of the letter where you're like, oh, I think we're done. And then you're like, nope, here we go yeah. again. Like he, he kind of like starts to say, these little benedictions all the way through yeah. the end of it. Mm -hmm. It's like a Marvel's post-credit scene, you know? Uh-huh. No, I don't I, know, Kyle. Yes, you do. I you don't know, explain you it know, to like, me. You know, like in a whole Marvel movie, you watch the whole Marvel movie, it's two hours long, and then they roll the credits. I don't and think then I've ever seen a Marvel movie. Shut your mouth. And everybody waits <laughs> until after the credits, and some random superhero pops in and is like, I'm Blorpo, y'all. The, the crowd's like, yeah, crazy <laughs> Blorpo. <laughs> oh, no, this is like the Dark Knight, only happy, where you're like, is it over yet? No, nope, <laughs> still not over. Is it over yet? No, you just thought that was the end. Yeah. This is like a Knowing Faith podcast. Is it over yet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is the season over? <laughs> <laughs> we, we get this. Hang on, everybody. Uh, we'll get there. We get this invocation of apostolic authority in verses 14 through 16. And, you know, Paul does this. I feel like it happens at least once in every one of his letters. And he might say something like, I could tell you this as an apostle, but I would rather just encourage you. Or 
I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And so uh, verse 17, you know, in Christ Jesus, I have, I, I'm proud of my work. Mm-hmm. I have reason to be proud of my work for God. So Paul is, uh, he, he is invoking a little bit of the the apostolic office here. He's invoking his authority and he's stating, um, and I think a way that at probably by the end of the letter, the audience knows he has good reason to state his authority. Hey, maybe if some of you are still quibbling over this in the corners, like just remember, like you should really weigh this, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? He's reminding them of what he said in verse chapter one, yeah, verse one. That's right. Oh, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he mm-hmm. promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy scriptures. And so he's, he's saying, Hey, I've already told you this. Now yeah. you've listened to my theology. You're beginning to listen to my ethical exhortation for you as Jew and Gentile believers in Christ, but be reminded who it's coming from. It's coming through the Holy spirit, through the written words that I'm giving you is as, as inspired divine scripture that mm-hmm. you need to listen to and obey as if you're obeying God. Yeah, well, he's definitely, he's going into his wind down because he is, he's actually going to get down in the next couple of verses and he's going to start talking about how far the gospel has spread as a result of his ministry thus far. He talks about how in verse 18 from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. And if you map that, it's really sweet. It's like this arc all the way around the edge of the Mediterranean um, so he's he's basically going back to what was the opening of the letter and saying, hey, this letter is many things, but it is certainly an appeal to you to support my missionary journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's he's pointing to look at the work that has happened so far. Um, and then he's going to ask them to partner to pray with him, which at the, at the beginning of the letter, he says, I pray for you. And so he's starting to put a bow on a lot of the, the ideas that he's introduced. And he's, as we would say, um, at a fundraising gala, he is making his ask. He's going mm-hmm. to, he's going to ask them to support what he's doing. That's right. And in Romans 19 through 21, we get something that seems to me, and this comes up Almost any time that I, I come to this passage, there seems to be something here that's kind of interesting from a missiological standpoint. You know, he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to... Uh, oh, hey, God, Oh, oh, don't oh give sorry, it to him. I gave it to him. <laughs> I was about to say, I was pausing for impact. Mm-hmm. Illyricum... Mm-hmm. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. Um, and, you know, people will say, well, does this mean that, like, we shouldn't start new churches where there are already churches? Or, like, we should we should only uh, preach the gospel in places where it hasn't been preached yet. I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. Um, and you know, I, I, I had to, uh, grapple with this question a lot when we were planting a church, we're planting a church in North Texas. Do you know what there already are in North Texas? Mm, I do. I do. There are churches Yes. and people, uh, there was a few people who were like, well, well, hold on. What are we doing here? Are we like building on someone else's foundation? It was like, no, no, no. What Paul is getting at here is yes. In his missiological journey, he is, he is making it a point and the apostolic going forth of the gospel. Like, I don't want to just go into Jerusalem and stay there. Although Paul does return to Jerusalem and preach the gospel, but I want to take the gospel where it has not been taken. 
I want to take it throughout the Gentile world. Uh, and so there is a part of Paul's missiological journey that he is kind of stating here as I think a unique part of his vocation, which is more of the pioneering aspect of apostolic missions, of which there is still an absolutely crucial need. We talk about the 1040 window, unreached people groups. <laughs> that is, there, there are still places around the world right now. And I, audience, you, you may already know this, but if you don't know this, there are places we're talking into the hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who have not heard the gospel. Like, well, And some places- of the irony here is, because you're, you're exactly right, Kyle, some of the irony here about the current 1040 window is that that was reached in the first and second century. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so like, not all of it, but like parts of unreached people groups now actually were part of the original apostolic mission that Paul mm-hmm. and others were set out upon in the first and second century. So you're exactly right, Kyle. Paul is not saying, therefore, nobody should plant churches or pastor churches where there are already churches. If he were doing that, he would say, Peter, get out of Jerusalem. Right. And he's not saying that. He's saying there are Peters who should stay in Jerusalem, plant churches in Jerusalem, and extend the mission to Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. He's just saying there are also Pauls who go to the ends of the earth, and in his mind, that's Spain, to plant more churches. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, uh, we're starting to get to Paul's kind of concluding comments in verses 22 through 29. Uh, he says, this is the reason why I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So let me ask this question. Does Paul make it to Rome? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does he make it to Spain? We don't know. Yeah. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I, I don't. Uh, I don't want to be. I don't want to be Debbie Downer. Jen came in with the voice of optimism, <laughs> but, but uh, he does make it to Rome. Yes, he does make it to Rome, and we know that the history of the church tells us that. Uh, whether he goes to Spain and ends up back in Rome, we know that eventually Paul is going. Mm-hmm. Rome is going to be where Paul uh, loses his life. Paul mm-hmm. is going to die in Rome, mm-hmm. um, and I think that gives this letter a kind of. Uh, I don't know. It has it. Maybe maybe that's one of the reasons why Romans has always stood out in Paul's letters, or maybe it's been given primacy of place. Is that it's not just one of the most theologically significant of Paul's letters, but it's, it's a letter to a place where Paul is going to die. Mm-hmm. And he just, you know, you can tell as he's writing this letter, you know, he is, he's filled with optimism about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, to be fair to Paul, he, he remains filled with optimism, even in really cruddy yeah. circumstances. And so like, if you're interested to hear about Paul coming to Rome, you can hear us talk about that in the Acts series that we did on Knowing Faith. Um, but he does indeed come to Rome in chains after having been, you know, basically storm-tossed, shipwrecked, bitten by serpents, beaten up by people. I mean, it's just, it's a terrible, a truly terrible journey that brings him there. And he does, and then when he when he reaches the the shores of Italy, what is now Italy, he is greeted by this church. They come mm-hmm. to to meet him and to give him the comfort that he's going to describe here. But then he's, yeah, he goes to Roman chains. Mm. He goes to Roman chains, but I like, I like the emphasis you're both, both putting on this is yes, it's a horrible journey of suffering for him to get to Rome. But even Luke at the end of the, at the end of uh, Acts talks about the optimism of, yeah, Paul's been through it mm-hmm. and he's suffering in Rome. But the very, very last verse in Acts, it, while Paul's living in Rome, it says he lived there 
two mm-hmm. whole years at his mm-hmm. own expense, welcomed all who came to him, mm-hmm. proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And I, I, here's one thing that I, I don't know if this will resonate with anybody that's listening, but it resonates with me. And I, I think it would resonate with the two of you based upon some of our conversations. The last two years of ministry and pastoring has been hard, mm-hmm. uh, but we haven't been bitten by snakes. <laughs> at least I haven't. And I've not been shipwrecked <laughs> and I haven't been beaten, but it's been hard. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to minimize anybody's journey, but you look at Paul and he just kind of has this gospel grit about him of optimism of, yes, I've been beaten. Yes, I've been bitten. Yes, I've been struck down but I'm just going to live here and I'm going to keep preaching the gospel that I wrote to you. Uh, here I am now in Rome and I've, I've already written this letter. And now it's time as we even look back to some of these things he said in, in verse 15, he's still welcoming. He's, he, he says, he, <laughs> I love that here at the end of Acts, it says he's welcoming everybody. And that's exactly what he tells Jew and Gentile to do here in, in mm-hmm. chapter 15. Mm-hmm. Welcome all people, proclaim the gospel of God's trustworthiness and his mercy to you in Christ. Mm-hmm. So, that's right. And he says, his, you know, we should pay attention to verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I think it's always a good exercise to ask, what other word could he have put in there? Like, may the God of all, what? He could have said anything, justice. He could have said grace. Mm-hmm. And yet he says, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And and because what are they going to need to dwell in unity with one another? They're going to need to be very aware. God has made peace with them. Therefore, they should live peaceably with one another. That's good. That's good. You know, verses 30 through 33, just like that, JT, just what you were saying, it always strikes my heart because there are so many times where I feel, again, and neither of us are saying that we experience what Paul's experienced. Um, None of us are. But that appeal of like, Mm -hmm. could you please pray? Like Paul's trying to spiritually lead. He's trying to preach the gospel. He's trying to teach. He's encountering resistance. And yet he's asking them, like, it's a very human moment Mm -hmm. to just be like, would you please pray for me? Mm -hmm. And, you know, listeners, I feel like one of the things that if you were like, what could I do with this episode of Knowing Faith? Like, maybe if you have a pastor or a teacher or a preacher, or you're a part of a church, or you, uh, you're helping plant a church or start a church, or if you're involved or you know somebody who is in ministry, frontlines kind of ministry, maybe after this episode, you would just take a moment and you would just pray for them and you would pray God's protection over them. You'd pray God's provision for them. You'd pray that the spirit's power would accompany the, their work, their ministry. And then you would just tell them that. Um, I'm not trying to say that like pastors and preachers and teachers and ministers are, uh, the only ones enduring stress. That's not true. Um, people across all range of professions are encountering a unique, a unique time of structural anxiety to borrow mm-hmm. a phrase from Mark Sayers. But I would say and encourage you, like if there are spiritual leaders who you respect and love, you, would you pray for them? After this, would you just like walk out what Paul's exhortation is here and just pray for them and ask God to bless them and their ministry and their homes and their households um, and strengthen them? Because I, uh, I have not spoken to a pastor or minister or teacher or preacher or really anybody involved in like care of any kind, nurses, doctors, mm-hmm. counselors, therapists, who does not feel like really beleaguered after the last 
two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are people that I need in my life and that I think we all need in our life. Uh, and I think that Paul's exhortation here, his human appeal of just going like, I appeal to you, would you please pray for to God on my behalf? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if there was something that I could just encourage you to do, that would be it. Like mm. just pray for someone who is trying to use the good news of the gospel to help other people. That would be a blessing to them. Mm-hmm. And it would honor the Lord mm. and be faithful to God's word. Is there anything else you guys would add to that? Also, send pretzels. Also send pretzels. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Carbs, um, hey, let's start a new podcast. Carbs and intercession. Mm-hmm. Car- <laughs> there we go. Carbs for Christ. Carbs. There we go. <laughs> no, I, I agree, Kyle. I mean, even just, just I, you know, I think one of the things that we like to do on this podcast is not just talk about the Bible, but talk about how it's affecting us. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, the three of us are friends, and we do life together. And just in the last few days, like Kyle and I were talking yesterday about stuff that I'm walking through at my church and things that Kyle's walking through, and we just have regular churches. It's not uncommon. Every pastor. Or, minister who's listening to this is, is is dealing with the same stuff we are. And it's just really hard. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just challenging to, uh, I, I, I like the way you said it is we're just, we're trying to care for people imperfectly and finitely. We aren't, we aren't many gods and we aren't many saviors. We're just pastors trying to, trying to give people uh, a clear understanding of the gospel of Christ. And it is, it's just a challenging, challenging thing. And for some reason, it feels like the last couple of years have just, there's been an acute, it's always hard. It's always, hard. I mean, this is, I think Paul would say, guys, this is, this is the life you've given yourselves to. This is, this is it. Mm-hmm. But there is kind of, I think, ebbs and flows to that. And it feels like there's been an acuteness to this where mm-hmm. I think a lot of ministers, pastors, missionaries, uh, I, I like how you framed it, Kyle, teachers, nurses, healthcare professionals, those who are trying to, like the people who have lived this structural anxiety themselves and are helping hundreds of other people live through the structural anxiety themselves. It takes on a unique weightiness to it that I, I think Paul's appeal here has been, would be a, a, a unique blessing to those men and women who are serving in those kinds of roles. Exactly right. Oh man. Well, I love this chapter. Uh, and uh, we have one more whole episode on uh, Paul's letter to the church in Rome coming up. We'll look at Romans 16. If you are just trying to catch up, you can find our whole archive wherever you get your podcasts. There are no older episodes behind some paywall somewhere. If you're looking for these episodes, you can find them on Spotify, Google Podcasts. If you're looking for Knowing Faith, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You should check out our sister show, the Family Discipleship Podcast. It's they I don't know if you guys have been following along. They've had incredible guests this season. Like they've had John Tyson on there. They had uh the Risen Motherhood crew. Uh, they've Ray had some fans. Ray, Ray Orland. Yeah. I mean, they've just had some great guests uh, over on the Family Discipleship Podcast. So if you are interested in how to take the stuff you hear here uh, and apply it to the life of your home and the life of your household, go check out the Family Discipleship Podcast. Um, listen, we have a cohort coming up. You may not know this, but Jen and JT and myself, we run a cohort called Training the Church. You can find more information at trainingthechurch.com. We have an upcoming fall 2022 cohort and you can apply now. It's really geared towards those who are in a senior or executive leadership positions in the life of your church or the life of their church who are looking to think through how do we form deeper discipleship in the life of our church here together. It's a fun cohort. We learn from you. You learn from us. It's collaborative. And there are still a few spots, although it is filling up and you can apply now. All right. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. Peace.